his book, Leadership Qualities, author Ken Boa talks about an experiment that was done in a fourth grade class in which the teacher introduced a game called Balloon Stomp. A balloon was tied to every child's leg and the object of the game was to pop everyone else's balloon while protecting one's own. You can imagine that. The last person with an intact balloon is the winner. Balloon Stomp is a zero-sum game. If one person wins, everyone else loses. The success of one causes the failure of others. The object of the game necessitates a winner-take-all mindset. Everyone else is someone to be rooted against. Balloon Stomp is survival of the fittest, a true Darwinian exercise. The fourth graders in Robert's story here, Ken Boa quotes, entered into the spirit of the game with vigor. Balloons were relentlessly targeted, they were destroyed. A few of the children clung to the sidelines like wallflowers at a middle school dance. But their balloons were doomed just the same. And the entire battle was over in a matter of seconds, leaving only one balloon inflated. Its owner was, of course, the most disliked kid in the class. It's hard to really win at a game like Balloon Stomp. In order to complete your mission, you have to be pushy, rude, and offensive. The author goes on to write that a second class was introduced to the same game. Only this time it was a class of mentally handicapped children. They were each given a balloon and the same explanation in the, in, in the class as the first class. The signal to begin was then given. The game, however, proceeded very, very differently. Perhaps the instructions were given too quickly for the children with learning disabilities to grasp them, but the one idea that got through was that the balloons were supposed to be popped. So it was the balloons, not the other players, that were viewed as the things to be eliminated. Instead of fighting each other, they began helping each other pop the balloons. One little girl knelt down and held her balloon carefully in place like a holder for a field goal kicker, while another little boy stomped it flat. Then he knelt down and held his balloon for her, and it went on like this for several minutes until all the balloons were vanquished and everybody cheered, because everybody won. <laughs> I want to ask you something this morning. Who got the game right and who got the game wrong? In our world of competition and comparison, we tend to think of another person's success as less opportunity for us to succeed. There can only be one top dog, one top banana, one big kahuna. And if we ever find ourselves in that enviable position, we will fight like mad to maintain our hold on that position, maintaining this balloon stomp mentality. But in God's new community, the rules change, don't they? God gets top billing, and we're here to serve his purposes, but also his people. And we do that most effectively, according to Jesus, by elevating others and humbling ourselves. One of the most central themes of Jesus' teaching is the theme of servanthood. His whole life painted a detailed portrait of what it means to be a servant. In fact, I believe this is one of the biggest barriers to people accepting Jesus for who he really is. To the Orthodox Jew, for example, accepting Jesus as the suffering servant portrayed by Isaiah 52 and 53 almost prohibits him or her from receiving him as Messiah. For the cynical, unchurched person, Jesus as servant is incompatible with Jesus as Savior. I'll go one step further. Even for the card-carrying, sold-out-to-Jesus, already convinced I'm a bona fide, born-again believer, accepting Jesus as a humble servant oftentimes complicates the matter of seeing him as Lord in our lives. Why? Because if we truly accept the lordship of Christ over our lives, then we must accept his model of servanthood and imitate his attitude of humility. 
Face it, friends, our hearts really beat in sync with Christ in this area of humility. We are plagued with a spiritual arrhythmia. In fact, it has become so seriously erratic that only the Holy Spirit can get it back on track. The spiritual practice of personal humility, in my opinion, desperately needs to be resuscitated, not only in our, our personal lives, but in the life of the church and mass. Because humility is the heartbeat of a healthy soul. Humility is the heartbeat of a healthy soul. I want you to turn in your Bibles to John 13. You know this passage of Scripture, very familiar if you've been in the church for any length of time. John 13, 1 through 17. We'll work our way down through these verses as, I, uh, as we move ahead. I'm not going to read the whole passage in its entirety right now. But this passage completely astounds me. I'm entranced, not just by what Jesus does here, but more so by who he is. I resonate deeply with the words once uttered by Napoleon. Of all people, Napoleon Bonaparte. I bet you didn't even know that he said these kinds of things. Napoleon, concerning the character of this Savior with whom I love with all of my heart, and hopefully you do too, Napoleon said these words. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible terms of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages nor nature offer me anything with which I am able to compare it to or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary. Now, to me, everything in this passage of Scripture is extraordinary. Jesus, the master communicator, indelibly etches in the disciples' minds a lesson in humility in such a way that they will never forget it. He performs a living parable on them. Imagine what it must have been like to have been present in that room on that night in the presence of the Savior of every man and woman ever created in history or ever will be created in history. And to have him stoop and remove his garments, gird himself with a towel, to remove your shoes, and begin to hand wash your dirty feet. Amazing. When John revealed Jesus as the visible, full-color version of Almighty God in the flesh in the opening sentences of his gospel, he states in crescendo fashion that we beheld his glory. Glory is that of the only begotten from the Father. He was full of grace and truth. Jesus broke the mold. And this text is living proof. Communications experts say that only about 7% of communication, actual communication, is verbal. I don't know what I'm doing up here. Well, that means that 93% of our communication occurs without words. Tone of voice, facial expression, and body language. In fact, more than half of our communication is from body language. Did you know that? You know, Jesus could have simply given them a verbal command. He could have told them what they should become as humble servants. And it would have been just as authoritative he instead chose to teach them humility in a manner which would have maximum memorable impact. Indeed, it would be a lesson uh, that they would continue to learn all of their lives, as would we. Every single day, they would encounter an absolute necessity for humility. They would experience the need of showing kindness to each other. Every day, they would be reminded that rather than seeking the honor of office, they had to be willing to give themselves up, even to death, for the benefit of the church. Not only was Jesus' masterful teaching out of this world, but his timing was impeccable. He taught them about humility on the very night that he was betrayed. The very night during the last meal that he would ever share with them. 
It was a night that they would not forget as long as they lived. You know, it's interesting to me that John is the only gospel writer who recorded this event. The only one out of the four. It's not that strange when you consider that 90% of the gospel of John is unique material compared to the other three. What he didn't record is also quite instructive to me. He gives us a unique glimpse into his own personality by what he leaves out and what he puts in. Even though John was, was one of only three eyewitnesses to Christ's glorious transfiguration on the mountain, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it. John does not record that event. Instead, John chose to reveal Christ's glory in this lowly act of humility. Quite a profound difference. Profound mystery. God becomes a slave. John saw Christ's glory revealed in this act of servanthood and preserved it so that we could more fully understand the character of God's absolute love for us because here's the deal, folks. If you haven't learned it already, and I'm still learning, boy, do I have a lot to learn in this area, only absolute love can generate absolute humility. If we truly love one another and serve one another, humility before God and each other is going to be essential. Because the heart of a spiritually healthy soul and church beats with the humility of Christ. Why? First up, it follows his example. It follows his example. Chapter 13, first 11 verses. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do now, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, never will you wash my feet. I'm trying to be humble. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. Just wash me all over. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. Instructive. Star that. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. What in the world is humility anyway? American culture would have us believe that it's akin to low self-esteem, yet true humility is not thinking lowly of oneself, but rather to think rightly of oneself. It's an understanding of ourselves as we really are, strengths, weaknesses, all of it, but we don't attribute more to ourselves than what God does or less. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am humble in heart. Low self-esteem could hardly be considered a character trait of Jesus Christ, who healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, and calmed the raging seas, right? Nor could arrogance be said about him. Jesus knew exactly who he was and exactly what he came to do. And he was submissive to the will of God, his Father, and a servant to the world of men. In his own words, he said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many in Mark 10, 45. Now, how could he say that? Those aren't the words of a maladjusted person, are they? They're the words of a well-adjusted servant. 
True humility follows Christ's example. It is power under control. From his example here in John 13, we learn from Jesus that, first of all, humility exhibits quiet confidence. That's in the first three verses. Okay? Notice the emphasis that John places here on what Jesus knew going into this night. Okay? His hour had come. He was going to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during, during the supper, devil, the devil had already put into Judas's heart to betray him. And Jesus knew, in verse 3, all of that, plus that God the Father had given all things into his hands. And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. He knew where he was going. Look at verse 11. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. If you go all the way down to verse 18, you find out that I do not speak of all of you, but I know the ones that I have chosen. Jesus knew all these things going in. Knew where he was going, knew where he came from, knew what he was up against. He knew that he had had the authority of the Father behind him. Now tell me, does that sound like a lack of self-confidence to you? Sounds like a pretty good estimation of himself. And the word knowing there means to know perfectly, to completely understand. Jesus fully understood that he would stoop to serve the very man who would ultimately betray him. He knew it. He knew perfectly well that every one of his friends in that room would abandon him that very night. Every one of them. And that his closest companion, the most promising of the leaders that he had amongst himself, that very night would flat out deny that he even knew him. Not once, but three times. With eyes wide open, Jesus bent down, wiped the grime from 24 of the, of the dirtiest feet and one of the most calloused hearts in human history. One of my favorite writers describes this picture of Jesus as a mind-bending image of God, blowing away all previous conceptions of who the Messiah is and what discipleship is all about. What a scandalous and unprecedented reversal of the world's values. To prefer to be a servant rather than the Lord of the household is the path of downward mobility in an upwardly mobile climate and culture, to taunt the idols of prestige and honor and recognition and to freely embrace the servant lifestyle, these are the attitudes that bear the authentic stamp of authentic discipleship. These are the brand marks of being a disciple of Christ. But the crux of this text is not only what Jesus knew. Notice the emphasis Jesus places on what we are to know. Verse 12, John 13, verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me the teacher and the Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you form a small group and talk about them. <laughs> What's it say? If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. You realize the first area we need a spiritual shock to get our heartbeat right is in this area of confidence? Each one of us must begin to think rightly of ourselves before we can ever become truly humble servants. Otherwise, we're going to be doing it for all the wrong reasons. It's going to become performance. We must realize that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. You need to know that if you are a believer in Jesus, that you are born of God's Spirit and there is no need to live like the rest of this world lives. In fear and in worry and addicted to a sinful lifestyle that you are completely forgiven and you are on your way back to God to inherit a glorious future. 
That's what you can know. That's what you can be confident in. You must know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The only way that you and I can possibly love our enemies, serve our neighbors, wash each other's feet, so to speak, is to be convinced that God is the source of our strength. We must be fully convinced that it is God working in us that makes servanthood possible. It is not, I repeat, it is not us working for God. We all shake our heads, yes, but how often do we get caught up in the treadmill? Deep down somewhere in that deepest part of our soul, we're trying to earn my father's favor. Even as a Christian. Not enough to know that you're his son. We got to do everything to please him. How's that working for you? It's not going to work for you. I think it was Warren Wiersbe who said that the trouble with too many of us is we think that God called us to be manufacturers when he's really called us to be distributors. He alone has the resources to meet human needs. All we can do is receive his riches and share them with others. Freely you receive, freely give. When it comes to ministry, all of us are bankrupt. And only God is rich. Once you accept yourself as a distributor of God's riches, you will experience a wonderful new freedom and joy in his service. It's possible to succeed in Christian work and be a failure in Christian ministry. Say that again. It's possible to succeed in Christian work and be a failure in Christian ministry. You have to decide whether you will be a servant or a celebrity, whether you will magnify Christ or promote yourself. The words of one particular author hit me square in the gut when I first read them. He said, I was never of any use to God until I found out that God did not intend for me to be a great man. That's a great statement. We should probably post it somewhere, most of all in our hearts. How do you describe yourself on your Facebook page? You click on that thing that says about so-and-so. What's on there? Is it one line or is it 50 lines? That's not bad to have accomplishments, obviously. It all depends on the motive of why did you post it. Martin Luther King Jr. hit the target. He said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve, right? My son's got a whole bunch of letters after his name now that he's a PhD. It's great, but I'd love him no matter what. I accept him no matter what. He didn't have to have a PhD after his name to make me proud of him. And you and I don't have to do magnificent things for Jesus Christ in order to have him love us and accept us. We need to do just what he asked us to do. And if that's picking up trash in the park and talking to people as you do that, praise God, you got a ministry. You see, anybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree, Martin Luther King Jr. said, to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. That's the tr essence of true humility. Note verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the utmost, to the end of himself, basically. Absolute humility is generated only by absolute love. And it is characterized by quiet confidence. Secondly, humility is revealed through quiet demonstration, verses 4 and 5. So Jesus got up, laid aside his garments, the robe of a rabbi, took a towel, girded himself, poured water in the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel he was girded with. Jesus' next move must have floored those disciples without announcement, without rebuke, without sarcasm. Jesus just stands up from supper, rose from the table. Well, it probably wasn't a table. They were probably reclined on the floor. But without announcement, without fanfare, he gets up. You know what's going on here? In that day, there were no paved roads. There were no cars. 
When a person went to dinner, even though he had bathed before, his feet would get dirty walking from one house to another, right? Can't even imagine how dirty those guys' feet must have been. They didn't even have a house that they were probably staying in. They were just walking back and forth all over Palestine. Traditional Jewish etiquette demanded that when guests arrive, a servant or a slave of the house would wash the guests' feet before dinner. That was just protocol. It was etiquette. As a matter of fact, the duty was considered so menial that a Jewish slave was not required to stoop to such tasks. It was the duty only of a non-Jewish slave or servant to wash his master's feet. However, if there was no servant in the house, a guest who arrived early sometimes assumed that role. Imagine that. Yet not one of the disciples did that to Jesus. You know, we read this text and we think that this was like something out of the ordinary, but it wasn't. This was something that happened all the time in people's homes, but nobody did it to Jesus. It was the furthest thing from their mind. Actually, they were engrossed in another more important conversation, more important debate, and Luke exposes it to us in Luke 22, verses 24 to 27. Let me read it to you out of the message. They were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. But Jesus intervened. And he said, kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior and let the leader act as the part of the servant. Who would you rather be, the one who eats the dinner or the one who serves the dinner? Who would you rather be? You'd rather eat and be served, right? Luke quotes Jesus as saying, but I've taken my place as among you as the one who serves. I've told this to some people before, but some years ago, Haddon Robinson, who's now passed away, fantastic preacher and teacher, gave a talk. I can't even remember now the exact passage he spoke on, but the point he made remains clearly etched in my mind. He painted this portrait of two different kinds of people. Immediately, you can identify those people when they walk in the room, by the way they walk in the room. One person walks in and everything about them, their attitude, their stride, their body language, where their eyes look and the way they approach you announces, here I am. And then there are those who, when they enter a room, communicate this message, there you are. We can all think of people in both of those categories, can't we? Convicting question hadn't posed that day at that conference, which convicts me to this day, is which kind of person are you? Which kind of person am I? Here am I kind of person, or are you a there you are kind of person? How are you perceived by those who meet you? Would you dare ask somebody? What do you think? That's a good topic for conversation out in the cafe today. Instead of talking about the latest thing, would you ask one another? When I walk into the room, what kind of vibe do I give you? Is it here I am or there you are? Be prepared to not like what you hear. <laughs> you think Jesus ever walked into a crowd and began with, here I am, I'm here, curios Jesus Christos, your Messiah, I am Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. The government rests on my shoulders. And I'm here to make Israel great. What hubris. What arrogance. What a lack of humility. Yet those are the kind of leaders we look to and strive to become like. I'm just being honest. Oh, I want to be like him because he has power and he has control. People follow him. They listen to his words. You want to know what will make America great? Humility. America will become great when Americans become humble. Bible facts on how many times Jesus used the term leadership. We have leadership conferences, leadership books. I just went to a leadership retreat with the elders. 
How many times did Jesus use the word leadership in the Gospels? Zero. The big bagel. You know, for all the focus we place on leadership in the church, uh, with all that stuff I just mentioned, blah, 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 right? Jesus never even used the term. He only used the word for leader twice, and both in a negative context, when he was pointing at the Pharisees. Actually, he used it one time in the plural. Matthew 23.10, do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. And that term really kind of isn't like leaders either. It really is, can be translated teacher. So what kind of chill do you think came over the apostles then in the midst of that argument when Jesus, when they're arguing who was the greatest and Jesus rose from the seat of honor, took off his outer garment, seamless costly robe of a rabbi, exchanged it for a towel and clothing of a slave, and he bent down, poured the water in the basin, began to one by one to wash their feet. What do you think that must have made them feel like? Imagine how erratically their hearts began to beat, knowing that the presence of the, the one Peter rightly identified as the Christ, the son of the living God. And the thought of serving him never crossed their mind. Not even once. How often does it cross ours? They were too busy fighting over the throne to remember the towel. How close to home does that hit? You know what I think? And this is self-indicting for me to say. But I'm convinced that if we're going to have healthy souls, we need, I need to be more practiced on putting on the towel than occupying the throne. In whatever relationship that I'm in. I guarantee you that marriages would radically be altered if husbands did that. That is the essence of Jesus' life and ministry. It's the centerpiece of his call. And ours. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus, who had every right to enter our world and pro proclaim, here I am, slipped quietly into humanity. He rubbed shoulders with the poor, the lame, the sick, the sinful, the weak. And whenever he walked into a crowd, his entire being lit up with one thought as he caught their eyes. There you are. And that made them feel like they were the only people in the room. It attracted people to him. That is what drew me from religion to Christianity. When I finally saw Jesus that way, when my father-in-law pointed that out to me, everything changed. I, I was just so convicted. One day, someone introduced me to this Jesus who says to me, there you are. And I'm like, oh, man. No, I'm not here. <laughs> That's the way you want to react, right? Here's a ladder over there, and there's a reason for that, because I want you to see the picture. I'm not going to climb it. And the sermon's not going to be about Latter-day Saints. <laughs> ah, it's bad, isn't it? That's not original. I got that from somebody else. But the entire life of Jesus isn't the story of somebody climbing up a ladder. John Ortberg says, it's a picture of someone coming down the ladder. A series of demotions. Okay? We just read the passage. To begin with, Jesus was in very nature God. He was up on the top. Top of the organizational chart of the universe. But he did not consider this to be grounds for grasping, he gave up the right to those things, have those things his own way, and became a servant. Even angels are servants, so he went lower than that. He became a human being. He took on flesh and blood, all our needs, all our limitations. This is the beauty of the incarnation, God coming down. But even on a human level, some people live as kings and celebrities. So Jesus took another demotion. He went down another rung on the ladder 
And he humbled himself and he was born in a stable. And he kept going down by making himself a slave right here in John 13. And he kept going down by becoming obedient to the point of death. And his ultimate task wasn't some glorious achievement. There was nothing glamorous about his death at all. But his demotion didn't even stop there. It went one extreme lower. It was death on a cross. And the scripture says, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. Here he is presenting himself to his people as the Messiah. And he allows himself to be crucified on a cross, which said to the Jewish people, that can't be him. Because cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. You know what the problem is with spending your life climbing up the ladder is? You're going to go right past Jesus because he's coming down. And you're going to cross on the way. Miss him completely. And ironically, the moment that he looked most like a failure, the world scoring system was his moment of greatest triumph in the eyes of the Father. Therefore, Philippians says, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name which is above every name. Serving in self-giving love is the most godlike thing that a human being can do. I need to learn this so badly. Joe Stoll, former president of Moody Bible Institute, pointed out in his book, Following Christ, experiencing life the way it was meant to be, that in the church, everyone wants to be a leader, that here I am complex. No one wishes to be remembered as a follower. Yet followership is what the scriptures clearly teach. Did you ever consider the fact that the New Testament books were not named for great leaders? Think about it. But for the followers, such as Timothy and Titus and Philemon and Corinthians and the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Philippians, in the Colossians, Thessalonians. You get the idea. What Jesus did in John 13 was the epitome of humility. He didn't blow a trumpet announcing that what he was doing, here I am. It says he quietly rose from supper, girded on the towel, poured the water, washed their feet. And he did it as if, as if it was his precise mission, as if they were his mission. There you are. Would you have performed such an act knowing what he knew? Would I? If so, and if so, would we have done it without expecting recognition for it? Sometimes we do things, you know, that are pretty humble. We think. Serve somebody. But then later on, we kind of like get all bummed out because nobody thanked us or nobody recognized us. You see, flaunting the towel is just as bad as fighting for the throne. It's pride. True humility reveals itself unannounced. It not only exhibits quiet confidence and is revealed through quiet demonstration, but thirdly, humility quietly receives without reservation. Verses 6 to 10. Washes Simon Peter's feet. Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. You know the interchange. And then it closes all of that with the fact that you're clean, but not all of you. And I know, John says, he knew the one who was betraying him. But Jesus washed the feet of the very man who was going to betray him. Now that is the epitome of humility. It would be one thing if you and I were going to serve somebody that would betray us, but we didn't know it was going to happen until after it happened. Jesus knew it was going to happen before it happened. You know, Peter didn't understand what Jesus was doing. Take this to heart, friends. There are many things that Jesus does in our lives that we don't presently comprehend either. But someday we will. Being able to receive graciously when we don't deserve it is another shock to our system. Some people have a really hard time with that. Most people are too proud to accept charity. 
They recoil at the prospect of accepting a handout of God's grace, especially in this uh, northeast New England, Mainers. I learned something this weekend at our elders' retreat from the guy that was leading us. He has it down, I'm telling you, he had it down. I never thought of this. In all the years I've lived in Maine, I've never thought of this. He could never figure out why he couldn't break into the Mainers' mindset and become close to them or whatever. And he said, you know, no community. Then he figured it out. He said, you know, if you want to really befriend your neighbor in Maine, don't ask them if they need help. Ask them if they'll help you. Think about that. The independent spirit that Mainers have, right? But they will give if, if they know that there's a need. They'll be the first there to help you in a lot of cases. I said, that was brilliance. But you know, there's a bad side of that, and that is not being able to receive graciously somebody's help. That's what keeps people from receiving Jesus, his forgiveness and his love. Now, I don't need it. I'm okay. If you've never received Christ, I want to ask you in the gentlest way I know how this morning, is that what's keeping you from accepting Christ and receiving him? Are you like Peter, not realizing your need of his cleansing? Do you understand that unless you concede to letting Jesus wash you, that you're not going to have any part with him and therefore no chance of salvation? And for everyone who has by faith received Christ, do you realize that even though you've been ultimately cleansed of your sin, our hearts can get tarnished as we walk through this life and we need to come to him daily, confessing our sins and being willing to receive his gracious cleansing every single day? And if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Humility exhibits quiet conviction. It reveals itself in unannounced ways. It receives unashamedly, and finally we learn from Christ that it responds unconditionally. Verse 11, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. You're thinking, how can I serve people that constantly are putting me down or hurting me or betraying me? Won't that make me a doormat? I just let them use me like that. That's why this mat is here, for those of you who can see it. Someone once asked me to define the line between being a doormat and being like Christ. Answer? Outwardly, you can't define it. They look identical sometimes, most of the time. The difference, however, between being a doormat and being like Christ is it's defined by what's going on in you as opposed to what is being done to you. Most people view a doormat as something to walk on and wipe your feet on. Here I am. But a doormat, picture that doormat having the humility of Christ clothed all over it. It sees every single person that comes in the door as an opportunity to serve them by washing off their feet. Same look to the mat, different perspective. That's the there you are mindset. I'll wash you. Stomp on me all you want. Every time you do it, I'm going to clean your feet. It's all about perspective, isn't it? And it all points back to the beginning when Jesus, the only reason that Jesus could do that was because he knew who he was in Christ, with his Father. We know who we are in Christ. We can serve anyone, right? Because Jesus did. Jesus washed even his betrayer's feet, and he knew from the beginning that Judas would sell him out, yet he shed the robe, donned the towel, poured the water in order to serve an enemy. Do you see how only absolute love can generate absolute humility? Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the scripture says. Eugene Peterson paraphrases that verse like this, but God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to him whatsoever. You want to be like Jesus? Don the towel, pour the water, improve your serve. To coin a phrase. Say it with me. Don the towel, Pour the water, 
improve your serve. In his book, I pulled it off my shelf this week. It's one of the first books I read after becoming a Christian. Chuck Swindoll was an old-time preacher now. He's getting up in years, and a lot of younger people don't know who he is, but he's still a vibrant, incredible preacher. One of the most prolific writers I've ever seen. He's written so many books, but one of his first books was entitled Improving Your Serve. And in that book, he tells the story that he quotes, actually, from somebody else. He said, little Chad was shy, quiet young man, and one day he came home, told his mother that he'd like to make a valentine for everyone in his class. Her heart sank. She thought, I wish he wouldn't do that, because he watched the way that the children, when they walked home from school, treated him. Her Chad was always behind them, and they laughed and hung on to each other and talked to one another, and they just left him completely out. But Chad was never included. Nevertheless, she decided she would go along with her son, so she purchased the paper and the glue and the crayons. And for three weeks, night after night, Chad painstakingly made 35 Valentines. Valentine's Day dawn, Chad was beside himself with excitement. He carefully stacked them up, put them in a bag, bolted out the door. His mother decided that she's going to bake him some cookies, his favorite cookies, and serve them nice and warm with a cool glass of milk when he came home from school because she just knew that he was going to be disappointed and maybe that it would ease the pain a little if she did that for him because it hurt her to think that he wouldn't get many Valentines, maybe none at all. And that afternoon, she had the cookies and the milk on the table, and when she heard the children running around outside and coming home, she looked out the window. Sure enough, there they came, laughing, having the best old time. And as always, there was Chad coming up the rear all by himself. He walked a little faster than usual. She fully expected him to burst into tears as soon as he got inside the door, but his arms were empty, so he didn't have anything, but he, it, she noticed. And when the door opened, she choked back the tears for him. Honey, I have some cookies and some milk for you, she said, but he hardly heard her words because he just marched right on by, his face all aglow, and all he could say was, not a one, not a one. And his mother's heart sank at first, but then she noticed the huge smile on Chad's face. As he added, I didn't forget a single one. Not a one. Chuck adds, so it is when God is in control of the servant's mind. You know, texts like this one, stories like that one, made me realize just how far off the pattern my heartbeat really is most of the time. Because... Often my kind of love operates with all kinds of conditions. Does yours? It's like we often love because of, because we love back, because we're in a good mood, because he or she has a pretty face, a great body, or a healthy checkbook, and a prestigious reputation. That's our kind of love. Jesus' love proved by his humility is not love because of. It's love even though. Even though he's mocked, Jesus loves. Even though he's spit on, Jesus loves. Even though he's blasphemed and he's crucified. Even though we fail him day in and day out, Jesus loves. Paul says that's what true Christ-like love is about. Don the towel, pour the water, improve your serve. According to the J.B. Phillips version of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, you know the love verse. Love does not pursue selfish advantage. It is not touchy. It does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. Love never fails, in other words. Servants motivated by love and who operate in humility, they don't keep score. Isn't that the love you want? Is that the kind of love you give? Spiritually healthy souls are marked by humble service. It follows Christ's example, and it also does one more thing at the end of this passage, and we'll close with this. It fulfills Christ's expectations. Right down to the end. It's actually verses 12 through 15. But I'll just read verse 15. It says, For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. 
They're probably thinking that if Jesus washed their feet, he would expect them to wash his. Wouldn't you expect that? Return the favor? Not true. The epitome of the true humble service is not to wash Jesus' feet in return for him washing ours. That's a given. That's not his greatest expectation. Jesus always has higher expectations than the obvious ones, right? Jesus told them to wash each other's feet. That's the true test, isn't it? We can claim that we serve Jesus and really who can prove otherwise? But it is much more difficult to look each other in the eye and truthfully make the claim that we serve one another if we're not doing it. That we wash one another's feet. You know, there's no way around verses 14 and 15 here in this text. Jesus doesn't say, I gave you an example that you might form discussion groups and meditate on it, or that you might memorize these words and repeat them to each other, or that you might analyze the example and write a commentary on it. No, he said that we should do it, just as he did it. Verse 16, truly, truly, I say to you, slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. We're not greater than Jesus, are we? If he was sent to serve, who am I to think that I'm exempt from that? You realize that to serve one another, each other, as Christ did, is an opportunity that will fulfill us beyond any earthly pursuit? Why on earth would Jesus lie about that? That's what he said in verse 17. He said we'd be blessed if we do what he did. Jesus didn't throw his words around lightly, flippantly. If he said we'd be blessed, he means blessed, man. I'm going to bless you if you do as I did. I don't just go out and do that to get a blessing. That's not the point, right? Jesus wouldn't lie. Taking those opportunities requires personal willingness. Are you willing to get involved in one person's life, just one, in order to meet their need? I guarantee you one leads to another, to, to another, to another, to another. You got to start with one. You can't look at it and say, oh yeah, I can't serve everybody in the church. There's no way. Hey, start with one. Are, are you willing to give up your comfort, your notoriety, your pleasure, your life in order to serve someone else? Because that's what Jesus did. And that is hard. No question about it. But Jesus also says that the man or woman who follows his lead will be blessed. Don't read earthly rewards into that statement because truthfully, honestly, servanthood often gets slapped in the face in the world. It gets dumped on and it gets taken advantage of and it is woefully misunderstood. You know the sad part about it is it happens even in the church. But Jesus promised blessing that is beyond the satisfactions of anything that this world has to offer. You want to find your life? Lose your agenda. Follow the one Jesus exemplified. Don the towel, pour the water, serve one another. And God says that you will have a healthy spiritual heartbeat. D.L. Moody once said this. He said, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves.